Well, listen, I, I talk about that a lot and I, I can't emphasize it enough. Fear of something is paralyzing, right? And so it can reduce your ability. So like you just said, which is so important, you don't have to be just in law enforcement to benefit from that. Just improving yourself to the point where, you know, you have confidence to not have fear in something or, and again, not that I, you know, sat in a corner and wouldn't talk to anybody, but the fact that, you know, that much uh, pressure and, and, and I don't want to say notoriety, but the fact that people who recognized you and said, hey, you're the guy, you know, why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? It, it's, it can become overwhelming. So I think you learn to adapt and it's amazing our survival instincts, how important they can be to get you through really tough situations. Welcome to Marnie and Martha podcast series, episode 10. Our guest today is Jerry Clark. He is a retired special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He also worked as a special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration and, Inve and Naval Criminal Investigation Services. He is retired from the FBI Pittsburgh Division, June 2011. Prior to retirement, he was the lead investigator on the color bomb, FBI's major case number 203, also known as the Pizza Bomber case, one of the select few major cases in the FBI's history. Jerry holds a BA in psychology, an MA in forensic psychology, and a PhD in public safety with a specialization in criminal justice. He's also the co-author of Pizza Bomber, the untold story of America's most shocking bank robbery, a History of Heists, Bank Robbery in America, Mania, and Marjorie Dell Armstrong, Inside the Mind of a Female Serial Killer, and On the Lamb, A History of Hunting Fugitives in America. Jerry has also been featured on a number of national television networks and media outlets, including Netflix Evil Genius, NBC Dateline Death Trap, CNN, CNN Support presents and the discovery channel fbi criminal pursuits jerry it is a pleasure to have you on our podcast today hey thank you marnie thank you martha i'm glad to be on so i um asked a few people uh what what they wanted to know what questions they had for you because you're sort of a legend and i think the best question they that one person had wanted me to ask was my sister, Sarah, wanted to know what your favorite pizza was in Erie. <laughs> Funny, I, I, uh, I often get asked that, believe it or not, but, um, really, I don't know if, if you've had Virgil's, uh, down on, um, I have. and with the he squares? Really, Oh, with the squares, man, that, that's some of the best pizza out there. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, that sounds amazing. All right. I'll let her know or ho hopefully she'll listen, but yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So the, um, the whole collar bomb case, the pizza bomber case is, is fascinating. And I watched the, the evil genius Netflix series more than once and, and over this weekend as well. Um, and learned things that I had never known about the case. The whole case really, I think defined you as a, a standout special agent with the FBI. Um, not, not obviously just locally here in Erie, but nationally. So I can imagine that had a huge impact on you. Um, even just, just watching it while binge watching it on Netflix or Dateline or whatever, just emotionally, mentally, just like was, was, um, 
was traumatizing for me a little bit. I can't imagine how it impacted you personally and professionally. Yeah, I, I've got, thank you, first of all, for the kind words. Um, the, uh, the, the, the things that you said were very nice about, um, you know, I, I just viewed myself as, a, uh, you know, an FBI agent that uh, went out and did cases. And probably in my career, I did, you know, five, six hundred bank robberies. But, you know, that one specific robbery just turned out to go to places and levels that you would never imagine. So on the personal side, um, you know, it really taught me a number of things about me personally, even to myself and my family you know, of how to leave your comfort zone and how to do things that are really stressful and to work under pressure. And because believe me, uh, there was so much intense pressure, uh, not only from the FBI and, and other law enforcement agencies to get the thing solved, but, you know, for living and working in the community to do that for, for Erie and to, and to get that case done. And, and then to try to strike a family work balance, you know, very challenging when you're working a major case like that. Um, certainly, I was immersed in and in, in so deep into that case that even when you go home, you bring it with you and very challenging. So health and wellness and keeping yourself not only, you know, able to go to work because of the stress, but just being able to be a performing at a high level. Professionally, you know, it helped me, I think, investigatively, certainly uh, working a major case like that. And with all the, uh, you know, eyes on it, that you have to do things perfect. And as I teach now at Gannon University, I talk about that to new investigators that, hey, you have to be 100% full of integrity and work the case and follow the truth. And the truth will take you to where you go and evidence leads you to the truth. So just learning and working those interviewing and interrogating and, you know, all the things that you need in a big case like that. The other thing that I thought professionally maybe helped me in ways, but learning to deal with criticism and people, you know, saying, wow, what are they doing? Why aren't they solving this thing? It's been years. And the criticism that goes along with, uh, you know, being in a high level uh, investigation like that. So dealing with that was tough. What, that, what year, I'm sorry, again, I, I forget. When did it, what year was the Pizza Ron case? It was so 2003. So August 28, 2003, my. So luckily the internet wasn't a huge thing yet because that would have the, right. So you would have had a much more public opinion weighed in, weighing in on it than um, back, back into, I mean, it's not that long ago, but. No, but that's absolutely true. Social media has gone to a new place. And so if you were to have that case uh, today, uh, it would have been even more intensive possible. So I agree 100% with that. You said, um, I think it, you started with it, it, it taught you a lot about yourself. What, what, so it, self-awareness to me is really important. What do you think it taught you about like who you are? You know, that's interesting because I always felt like, hey, I, I had a real great background in psychology, educationally at least, and, you know, interviewing interrogation uh, was always what I prided myself in, in handling uh, different types of predators or, or, or interviewing 
different types of criminals in their in their actions. And so I always felt I had a you know pretty good feel about that. But the fact that when I say leave your comfort zone, the fact that the intensity of having to, you know, run two a day briefings and be in front of, you know, hundreds of investigators during the course of time and 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 testifying five and a half hours in trial and you know that's that's leaving your comfort zone and i think that this case actually propelled me into a new level of uh ability for you know public speaking and and talking in crowds and maybe an overall confidence that i think it really improved me personally yeah i think that's that's a good lesson for for everyone anyone not necessarily um fbi agents but uh, always, not always, but be able to leave your comfort zone because in the end, um, it'll take you to greater heights once you once you become more comfortable with it. Well, listen, I, I talk about that a lot and I, I can't emphasize it enough. Fear of something is paralyzing, right? And so it can reduce your ability. So like you just said, which is so important, you don't have to be just in law enforcement to benefit from that. Just improving yourself to the point where you know, you have confidence to not have fear in something or, and again, not that I, you know, sat in a corner and wouldn't talk to anybody, but the fact that, you know, that much uh, pressure and, and, and I don't want to say notoriety, but the fact that people who recognized you and said, Hey, you're the guy, you know, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? It's, it can become overwhelming. So I think you learn to adapt And it's amazing our survival instincts, how important they can be to get you through really tough situations. Yeah, I I would, I would, we don't have to talk about emotions a ton, but fear, um, just, just fear in general, that emotion could, could potentially, if you don't address your fears and you just let them um, either, you know, bottle up inside of you, it could, it could potentially lead to a lot of negative behaviors and not even realizing it. And if you would have just addressed that fear um, actually, the beginning that we initially ca- called our our podcast, just the whole entire show, respecting fear. So, um, I when he, personally, when I f- am starting to feel fearful, I like really have to sit down and analyze. Okay, why am I feeling this way? What am I going to do about it? Um, so it doesn't lead to any any issues later on. Would you agree with that? There's a lot of a lot of negative things are led from fear. Oh, absolutely. And like I said, it'll cause you to not do something that you might have wanted to do or to say something or to actually, um, you know, move forward on something just out of the out of fear. And then fear can lead to stress and then stress can lead to anxiety. And, you know, not to get too psychological, but my background in psychology tells me and and what I try to teach law enforcement officers even to this day is the health and wellness side of law enforcement. And, and it applies really to any job, but specifically to law enforcement sometimes because of the things they do and see in a day or a career. And I'll tell you, if you don't address that stress and if you don't address uh, that high level of anxiety and anxiousness, it can really cause you problems down the road, like you just mentioned. So I have a terrific PowerPoint and one of maybe our podcasts we can talk about health and wellness, uh, in this field. I know, um, the health and wellness is so 
disregarded a lot of ways when you get into public safety and law enforcement. Um, there's just so much more that we could do to help people out to get through stressful situations like this. Um, I think that would be a fantastic idea to address on a later episode. Um, well, kind of circling back to the color bomb case, um, when you finally had that pivotal breakthrough, what what was your emotional reaction and and what what was that breakthrough point that turned the case? You know, every case and certainly major cases all the way down to some of the most minor things you could work uh, will have a breakthrough and have a somewhere in there that becomes so important. And in our case, I had really, when you look at it, three dead uh, or deceased individuals within a three-week period. And so you had Brian Wells, who robbed the bank, who's deceased that day. And then three days later, you have a second pizza delivery driver who dies of an overdose. And then three weeks later, we find the body in the freezer at Bill Rothstein's garage. And my job was to try to link those three deaths together from three different jurisdictions in three different manners of death. And so that became very challenging. And so you start looking at, hey, what what are some of the really key moments for breakthroughs? And for us, it certainly was, you know, when I was finally able to interview Marjorie Deal Armstrong in 2005, from 2003, when the case happened to 2005, she was declared incompetent to stand trial. So you couldn't interview her. So when I finally got a chance to interview her, uh, there were some major breakthroughs in some of the things that she was saying, even though she was trying to separate herself from being involved. She was saying things that were completely uh, contrary to what she was trying to profess. But then the second major breakthrough was in 2005, one of the uh, witnesses came forward, a UPS driver who actually saw Bill Rothstein and Marjorie Deal Armstrong at the payphone at 1.30, which was the time the pizzas were ordered, which was an unbelievable breakthrough seeing both of them at that payphone. And then probably another huge breakthrough was when Jessica Hoopsick, the prostitute in the case that linked Brian Wells to having known these co-conspirators by bringing him to Ken Barnes's house. Um, that was a, a huge link for me to, to try to put these three deaths together. And then certainly the last one would be Ken Barnes, who was a co a conspirator in the case and actually charged in the case, actually telling us and, and providing us information on exactly what he did. So those are sort of the, the real breakthroughs for us in the case. So can we um, circle back really quickly? So um, I'm not sure if every listener that we have, not that we have a ton, but they might not know what the pizza bomber case, the collar bomb case is. Can you just give like a, a, a brief synopsis of generally what it is. I could, but you could probably give a better description. Yeah, exactly. Brian Wells walks into a bank wearing a bomb uh, and he's forced to rob the bank, according to him. And the whole case becomes whether or not he was a co-conspirator or uh, certainly a, a, a bank hostage and was had to rob the bank. And then three days later, a second pizza delivery driver who works from the same shop that Brian Wells did delivering pizzas that day, dies of an overdose. And then three weeks later, Bill Rothstein calls 
uh, and says, I have a dead body in the freezer in my garage and Marjorie Deal Armstrong killed him. And the reason that's important was his house was directly next to the tower site location where Brian Wells delivered the pizzas and got the bomb put around his neck. So all those three turned out to be the, the crux of the case. Was it a bank robbery just for money or was it a whole scheme uh, outlining uh, other reasons? And as it turned out, the real whole the, the whole nexus of this case was Marjorie Deal Armstrong was an only child and her father had a lot of money and she wanted the inheritance and she wanted it now. And so she went to her friend, Ken Barnes, and said, hey, can you kill my father? And he said, well, I need 250000 down, but I'll kill him. And she said, well, where am I going to get 250000 And they decided, well, let's rob a bank. So the whole real crux, if you boil this pizza bomber case down, was to rob the bank to get the money to pay Ken Barnes to kill Marjorie's father to get this large inheritance. And that's really what it boiled down to. Wow. I, I, I always wonder, so with, with the criminal mind and whatnot, and especially for a female, it's, it's, uni- it's a definitely unique situation. So when someone's in a, in a crutch or whatever, they need money, um, the average person, whatever average means, well, at least I would think, okay, what do I have to do? What, what job do I have to take on? Um, what freelancing work, whatever. But criminals think, I think, you know, where can I steal this from? I need to rob somewhere. And I, and I, just that mindset alone, I don't, I couldn't ever imagine that would be my first thought is to, you know, do something illegal to get this money. Yeah. And that's the amazing part of the criminal personality and the, the criminal mind. And maybe one of our next podcasts, again, I've got all these ideas for, for future podcasts, but we have so many people out there with like-minded bad behavior that find each other. And that's what happened in this case. And that's what made it so unique. The characters that found each other for this like-minded bad behavior. We already kind of talked about what do you think possessed her to carry out the whole scheme? And you said it was money really. Um, But you know, typically men are the, are serial killers. So, and she was definitely unique. What were your thoughts about interviewing her? Can you give a little bit about that experience? Sure, absolutely. Um, Marjorie, and and people sort of laugh when I say this in a real weird way, like, wow, that Jerry Clark's pretty weird if he's thinking he's fortunate to have met Marjorie Deal Armstrong. But I consider myself as an investigator so fortunate or lucky to ever have come across somebody like her in this regard. She is a rare, rare bird. I mean, there's... There's so few female serial killers. I mean, Eileen Wernos, you think of from down in Florida where she was killing uh, men that would pick her up for prostitution. Uh, and there, and if you read our book, um, Mania and Marjorie Deal Armstrong, Inside the Mind of a Female Serial Killer, there's a number of reasons why females kill, but it's not usually by violent means. And uh, using a gun or, or using some some way that's violent, usually they'll poison someone or, or they'll suffocate someone or they may use less violent means. Not that death isn't violent, but it's it's definitely a less violent means. Well, we go through that whole process of how rare Marjorie Deal Armstrong was. 
And it's sort of interesting that, uh, and I guess it was a year or so ago, I got asked to speak at a serial killer conference at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And they had some of the world-renowned serial killer uh, workers and, and people from that background involved in the conference and Dr. Henry Lee and Dr. Cyril Wecht. And, and, and when they asked me, I thought, wow, that's interesting, but it's so true. Marjorie was a female serial killer. She had five dead men that were associated with her, that she was responsible for her death and for their death. And so that puts her in that category. So the FBI defined serial killers as someone who may kill two, and sometimes it's three, but two or three period people within a cooling off period in between the killings. And that certainly fit Marjorie Deal Armstrong. So when I met her in the prison, uh, it was so, so intimidating because she had this aura about her. And I happened to have a history with Marjorie Deal Armstrong all the way back to when I started as an Erie County adult probation officer. And she was on parole uh, for actually a firearms violation after shooting her boyfriend six times and killing him. And she was acquitted for that, but she got charged with having a gun (laughs) illegally registered. So she was actually on. So I actually knew her, which, which made it even more intense. But we remember um, you? Yes. Well, you said she had an aura about her. What was it just, what was the aura like? Was it overly confident? Was it like just, what was her characteristics or personality like? Here's the thing about her. And I ended up interviewing her probably eight times uh, after we, we interviewed her that one time in the prison and we rode her around in the car and we, you know, sat in the back of a car eating pretzel rods in the state police car and drinking Diet Cokes. And she was actually so unique, uh, manipulative, funny, evil, uh, angry, uh, good to be around, horrible to be around, but she would kill me as quickly as she could if she had the opportunity. And the, the, the uniqueness of that is somebody that you may not see in a lifetime. And that's why when I say the fact that, hey, I might be fortunate enough to have been able to interview and interrogate her, uh, that's why I consider that. You may never meet somebody like her ever. That is so fascinating. Would you classify her as like, um, I don't know what the what the technical term is, but this uh, the inability to have empathy? Yeah. So when, when we talk about the criminal mind and we get into the psychology of criminal behavior, uh, we will talk about antisocial personality disorder, which is the new psychopath. So they've taken psychopath out of the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Mental Disorders, and because they viewed it as a negatively connotated word, but uh, basically no empathy, no remorse, um, totally callous, don't care about anybody else's feeling but their own, completely manipulative, um, a whole slew of criterion that make up an antisocial personality. Do you think she qualifies under that? Absolutely, 100%. Um, if I was diagnosing her, uh, she had numerous, numerous psychological evals and psychiatric evals, all deciding she had several personality disorders, 
So those are characterological in nature. So you're looking at histrionic, borderline, narcissistic, antisocial personality disorders. And then you might throw in bipolar disorder that they argued on on both sides on whether she was truly bipolar. But yes, she would absolutely fit the criterion for antisocial personality disorder. Is there any like pivotal moment that you remember so specifically with her, that something she said? Yeah, there were a couple. One time we had her in the state police car and we're riding uh, up and down I-79 looking at different sites. And she would try to tell me, yeah, I was here uh, at the Shell station getting gas where the phone call was made, but I didn't know why I was there. And yeah, we were at the tower site and Bill Rothstein was talking to some people, but I didn't know why we were there. And so she was trying to separate out the fact that, okay, I might have her on video at the Shell or I might have her somewhere with a witness. So she knew not to deny that. That's how smart she was not to deny that she was those places. But what she tried to say was she didn't know why she was there. And that was the part that really became unbelievable. But one time we're in one of those turnarounds that the Pennsylvania State Police and authorized vehicles use on the highway. And she's telling us about things. And all of a sudden she stopped and she goes, you know what? I need to stop. And I said, why? She said, I think I just put my head in the lion's mouth. And I, I sat back and I thought, well, what, what do you mean? And she said, I think I've said too much is basically what she was trying to say. She said, take me back to the jail. So that was one of those moments where she was really, she could be funny uh, in trial. Uh, I'll never forget one time when they take the jury out of the box and they took the judge off of the bench and she swings around in her chair and she looks at her attorney and she said, I'm, I'm tanking like the Bismarck over here. Come on. And oh everyone in the room is <laughs> sort of chuckling, going, that's just funny. I mean, so she was comical in ways, but deadly in others. I mean, so when you think about a personality like that, you know that you're dealing with somebody extremely rare. That is just, I just, I can't, that's so fascinating to do that. Did she ever show any type of remorse for what she did or was it more that she was caught that she was upset with or did she really never make that connection? She could never make the connection between what she did and wrong, you know, and that's the lack of empathy that the antisocial personality disorders have. They just don't get that connection. They do three different defense mechanisms. Usually they minimize they rationalize, and they project. And all three of those are defense mechanisms that you and I may use, you know, in a minor way during the course of a day, you might minimize I something. Say, I can relate to that. A little exactly. Bit. <laughs> exactly. But for them, it's a huge minimization, like, oh, I killed him. But it wasn't that big a deal, because he was probably going to be violent to me anyway, or something. And, and that's the whole rationalization or I used to see it in pedophiles all the time when I'd interview a pedophile and they'd say, well, look at, you know, how she was dressed or she looked 20, but she was 14, you know, and it, so that, that, that whole thinking error uh, really is, is a true antisocial personality characteristic. 
Right. It's just almost like they convince themselves that there's no other other um, fact than what they think in their head. That's right. That's exactly right. We saw that with Eileen Wernos. You know, she'd pull over and a, a, a guy would pick her up for sex because she's a prostitute. And then she'd drive them to or have them drive her to some location. And then she would pull out a gun and kill them. And her rationalization for that was, well, they were probably going to mistreat me. And so in her mind, that was her way of of rationalizing the behavior that she went ahead and and uh, would go forward with. Who who was what was her name? Eileen Wernos. And she was Florida uh, put to death in Florida by the death penalty uh, after killing uh, a number of men. I think it was up to seven that they charged her with uh, who had picked her up for, um, again, uh, prostitution. I see. So she was another female serial killer. Exactly. And like I said, there's so few, uh, of, of those who use violent means like a gun and Marjorie certainly used a gun on, on numerous, uh, occasions. How how about the characteristics are of, uh, the serial killers? So are they similar other than the, how they, um, you know, the weapon or what have you, are the characteristics the same or relatively similar or was she and are they completely unique? No, they're very similar. In fact, um, the rarity is to have a female who kills like a man. So a Ted Bundy who might use ruses to pick up women uh, and then, you know, slap handcuffs on them and put them in his Volkswagen and, and then kill them later. He uh, had the same characteristics of manipulation and and thinking errors that somebody like Marjorie had. What was rare about Marjorie and Eileen Wernos and uh, any other females that use violence like that was the means in which they killed. So all their characteristics seem the same. Uh, it's just that you don't see that often with females as a violent uh, use of, of, of a weapon to kill. So are there any other serial killers that are, that are female that haven't used a violent used method to kill? Sure. And, and we've seen these before. And we mentioned a lot of these in our book uh, where there were and women that would use poison, say, to kill uh, husbands and then have multiple husbands that they've died off and killed. But again, poison, again, it's death and death is death. Don't get me wrong. It's still, a, 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 you know, a very bad thing to do. Uh, but it's very different than if she would have uh, used a weapon like a, a gun to kill somebody. And that that's where the differences come. You've heard also of angels of mercy, you know, nurses that would maybe put a pillow over somebody who was dying and suffocate them, thinking they were helping them, you know, get out of pain or something. And you'll find they've killed, you know, 20 patients like that or something. And again, that would be considered you know, a, a serial killer, but the use of, and manner of death would be different. Oh, wow. Well, just to circle back to the case in itself, um, what was the um, most shocking re- uh, revelation that you came came to with this case? You know, I think the thing that's still to this day you know, when I talk to all these people who are interested in, in, in you know, Netflix and, and, and movies and, and such, when they, they focus on the bank robbery itself, 
But to me, more interesting is the fact that the characters who found each other to do this and the way they did it. So when you think about, uh, you know, diabolical comes to mind when I think of the word, because they could have had a guy go in and rob a bank. You don't have to put a bomb around his neck and then you have to make it so that it's going to explode. And then you don't have to make them do a scavenger hunt to drive around the locations, to find keys, to unlock the collar around his neck. I mean, the fact that the scheme that was put together was so maniacal and so uh, evil in its planning becomes the fascinating part for me. And that's the psyche of the people that literally formed an allegiance to do this to another human being. And that's the part that always shocks me, even to this day. Do you think Brian was in on it? Like, did, did he? That, I think that's one of the most debatable topics, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Evil Genius, of course, had the slant that, and, and, and quite honestly, Evil Genius was an entertaining four hours of episodes of show. But at the end, they totally missed the evidence and wanted to follow their own slant. And that's, that's I, I, they can take the liberty to do that. But if you went to the trial of Marjorie Deal Armstrong, you know that the government presented numerous amounts of evidence that Brian Wells had met these people through Jessica and that he knew he was going to be utilized to rob a bank that he went to a pre-planning meeting for the bank robbery the day before. And the day he showed up, he tried to back out because he saw the device for the first time. And he said, that looks too real. I don't think I want to do that. And they said, you're going to do it. It's fake. And you're going to get away with it because if you get caught, you're a bank hostage. If you don't get caught, then we'll take it off you and we'll split the money. And that's why he was calm and cavalier in the bank and why he didn't seem too nervous. And that's why up until the very last second, when I was 30 feet from him, when it went off, I think he didn't know for sure it was real. And so that was the most challenging part for me watching Evil Genius at the end was the fact that they tried to say he didn't know what was happening. And unfortunately, like I talked about in the very first minute that we spoke, integrity and the truth are everything. And if you follow the evidence, it leads you to the truth. And unfortunately, the evidence shows he tried to get out of the of the robbery. So he tried, but he stuck with the story that they gave him and followed through with the robbery. And so that's the difficult challenge for Mr. Wells. So you talk about how intelligent she is, right? So how, why did they think that could possibly work? And that's the thing about it. I think after, and people have asked me about this, they say, why would you have a guy rob a bank with a bomb around his neck and then come out of the car, come out of the bank, get in his car and drive around to find keys with all the money in the car? That's a horrible bank robbery, right? Because then he could get caught at any time or in this instance, get killed. So their plan was, and this is the part Evil Genius doesn't talk about too much, 
is Brian was to rob the bank, come out of the bank, and immediately transfer the money to Bill Rothstein, who would be waiting outside of the bank, and then go on the scavenger hunt, and then the bomb would blow up, and it wouldn't matter because he had given away the money already. But what had happened was there were people on cell phones calling 911 even while Brian was in the bank robbing it. So Rothstein saw that and couldn't get close enough to get the transfer of the money. And that's why the money was still in the car when Brian Wells was pulled over and then ultimately the bomb detonated. Uh, I was going to say, it just seems like Marjorie wanted to have a game that that this wasn't real life that she was dealing with, that it was just a game to see, can I get him to do it? And You know, that's exactly what Bill Rothstein, because a lot of times Marjorie gets the credit as the mastermind. Marjorie is the mastermind in this respect. She wanted the money to pay to kill her father to get the money uh, from the inheritance. But Bill Rothstein is the mastermind of the scheme on how to rob the bank. So this whole uh, scavenger hunt and stopping for keys and and the bomb going off intentionally is all Bill Rothstein. And so a lot of times Marjorie knew about it, but I think Bill was the one that had the evilness to kill Brian Wells so that he would never be a witness in the case. But she wanted to to um, implement this, the um... – so, so, so her, she was the motive, but the scavenger hunt you're saying was not her. No, I think when you look at that, she might've had some part in writing the notes and she might've had some part in developing some of the, um, the stops and where they stopped to, to try to get keys. And by the way, law enforcement went to all the sites that Brian Wells was to go to, which he never got to because, you know, the bomb detonated. And there were no keys at any of the sites. So that tells you right now that they never planned on getting the device off his neck. So that part, I think she could have helped out with, and she certainly knew he was going to die. But how the device was made and the cane gun that he had in his hand were all made and designed and executed by by Bill Rothstein. Gotcha. And how about Jessica Hoopsick? Was she in on it or did she, she was, didn't know and just happened to be friends with him? You know, <laughs> Jessica Hoopsick becomes quite a character in this evil genius because, and I interviewed Jessica Hoopsick numbers of times. Okay. And the whole theory that, you know, one of her children were Brian Wells's, you know, it just, it was not factual at all. And she was pregnant during the course of the case um, one child was, uh, you know, African-American and so it wasn't Brian's. And so she, she had a number of things that were not accurate at the end of, of evil genius. But one thing she did do was introduce Brian to these people and then felt horrible about horrible about what happened. So I think that her, her guilt got the best of her and she realized at the end that I introduced Brian to people who killed him. And so I don't think maybe she necessarily knew about the plot to have the bomb be real, but I certainly think she knew that the bank was going to be robbed 
and Brian was going to participate. Gotcha. Is she, does she still live in Erie out of curiosity? She wasn't in, in Erie. And then, uh, she at one point got arrested down in, uh, near Pittsburgh and for prostitution. And, um, last I heard she was, uh, back here in Erie, but I have not bumped into her in a long time. So would you, you know, the whole, um, element of the, the psyche of all of these people meeting together, would you say that she fit into that psyche or was she just, a she not really, you know what Jessica's problem was pure addiction driven. Uh, she was addicted to crack cocaine and other uh, other drugs, and I saw her in the worst states of addiction that you ever would want to see a human being. And a lot of times we drove her to places where she could get help, and she would last only a short period of time in those facilities, and the next thing we know, she'd be back out. So we tried to help her on numerous occasions, and... Uh, and it just was unsuccessful, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that's that's um, unfortunately a common common thread, especially in today's world. Um, and I, I'd love to get your 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 opinion and your or your perspective and knowledge about how um, your childhood and whatnot affects all of this. But regardless, we we don't need to get into all, all of that. Um, so I think that you're going to be a re- yeah you're going to be a repeat guest on on our show moving forward, um, and we really look forward to speaking with you about the, the psychology of the criminal mind and h- how it all works. I want to pick your brain a little bit more, and and I'll probably um, ask some other people what they would want to know. But can you give our audience a, just a teaser about what the next subject matter will be? What we're going to focus on? Sure. I think um, we're going to talk a little bit about the criminal mind and the criminal personality. And and like you said, how that develops and the developmental progression into an antisocial personality disorder and how someone might start out as oppositional defiant disorder and then move into conduct disorder and then move from conduct disorder into antisocial personality disorder. And there's so many things that are interesting and fascinating about the development of this uh, and then we can talk about the why, you know, and I, I, I get so intrigued by this, even to this day, not what people do, but why they do it. So if you think about someone who kills somebody else, we know that they killed somebody. They could have used a gun. They could have used, uh, you know, a rope or a poison or, uh, you know, a knife. It's the why they wanted that person dead that becomes fascinating to me. And that's the part of the next conversation that I look forward to us having regarding the criminal mind. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. I just, the why and why people do things, um, especially on, on the evil and criminal end of things has always fascinated me. Um, so I am very much looking forward to further conversations with you. I appreciate you being able to share uh, your time today and give us a little bit of an insight into the pizza bomber um, case.
Well, Marnie and Martha, I'm, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to talk with you and uh, just uh, very happy to be now associated with Valentis Security and all the good things that they do. And and I, I got to tell you, it's just uh, uh, really fun for me to do. So thank you very much. And if so, to our listeners, we always forget at the end, make sure that you subscribe so you're updated to the, the upcoming episodes with Jerry. Um, and if there's anything in particular that you guys would like to know or ask him, just um, leave a comment in the on the on the website for this uh, podcast or in the comment section of one of the apps that you use. Yes, thank, thank you, you very everybody. much.